Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of Wild, Messy, Infinite Love. I know this one has been on the docket for a while. I posted about it on Instagram almost a month ago, and it still hasn't come out yet, but now it is. It is episode 23, and the episode is called That One Where Eric Talks About the Bible. I am your host, Eric Snader, aka Brother Snades, and I am excited to talk about, you guessed it, the one, the only, the Holy Bible. Um, but before we get into that, I want to talk about some things. So first off, um, like I mentioned, I posted about this episode a really long time ago. In actual fact, I recorded this episode like last week, a week and a half ago, and after recording it, it just really didn't sit right with me listening back to it. There were some things that I really wanted to tweak about it. And it just so happened that I was also having some trouble. Um, I was also having trouble actually getting the episode posted. Um, so all of this stuff was working on me. And then I thought, you know what, I really just need to re-record it. So that's why this episode has been delayed. It was supposed to come out last Monday. It didn't. Um, so now it's here for you now to listen to. Um, in other news, I am excited to be able to say that I'm hoping to be able to come out with at least a monthly podcast, maybe two podcasts every month. Um, March is a little iffy because of things at work and just because of busy schedules and um, thinking through sort of next steps in the podcast game, in the creative game, in the spiritual guidance game, all that kind of stuff. It's not really a game. Um, and so I'm working through a lot of that stuff, um, but I'm hoping I'm hoping that I'm able to record at least one podcast a month, hopefully some more um, but there will be more coming. Um, there may be some more content outside of podcasting that might be coming this summer. Um, so stay tuned for that. Be sure to jump onto my Instagram page, um, Brother Snades, or my Facebook page or Twitter handle, which are also um, under the title of Brother Snades. That's B-R-O-T-H-E-R-S-N-A-D-E-S. Yes, I could spell. <laughs> um but go on over there and um, you should be able to find where I'm posting updates, where I'm creating content, all that kind of stuff. So be sure to check that out to stay tuned and up to date with when podcasts are coming out um, and when new content is coming out because I'm excited to bring it to you. Um, but without further ado, let's jump into this episode. And folks, this episode really is... Um, something that I realized that probably needed to be said. I don't know if you've noticed, but um, especially since I come from the Christian household, a lot of my imagery, a lot of my language comes from uh, the holy, the holy scriptures, quote unquote, holy scriptures. It comes from the Bible. It comes from the Hebrew scriptures. It comes from the New Testament. Um, and I, after. The last episode, the um, episode about Duke Nukem, um, I realized that some of the language I was using 
can be considered insider language. Um, some of you might be listening to my podcast and be like, yeah, I know this Jesus guy. Yeah, I know this Moses guy. Yeah, I know who Mary Magdalene is. Yeah, I know who Mary, the mother of Jesus is, all these people. Um, but some of you might not. So I wanted to take a minute to really dig into, not really dig into, really scratch the surface on the Bible and what makes it so important to me, what makes it so enthralling to me. Um, because a lot of us, if you're someone like me, um, you've had the Bible used in harmful ways against you. Um, you've had the Bible be manipulated and coerced into um, pr- producing this message that really does not seem to be in line with what you're reading in the actual book itself. So I wanted to talk about some of that. Um, and so that's what this episode is about. Um, for those of you who are like, oh man, not this whole Bible thing, not this whole Christian thing, hang with me. Um, because I think this episode is something that stretches beyond just Christianity, just beyond, um, our, our single focused religion, but I think this is something that really stretches into the heart of spirituality, into the heart of what it means to really learn from wisdom that's passed down from generation to generation, all that kind of stuff. So please hang with me. That's a long intro. Folks, the one where Eric talks about the Bible. So let's freaking talk about it. All right, folks. So the Bible, let's talk about it. <laughs> um, first off, before we uh, really get into the meat of this podcast, I want to give you a brief overview of sort of the different points that we'll be landing upon in this podcast. So first off, I want to talk about um, some historical and background information about the Bible that is I know for me was really helpful in college and moving forward and realizing that this text is something that's much bigger than just this narrow um, rule book that I was given when I was growing up. And then I want to talk about some different ideas that have helped me process through um, the Bible. So I want to talk about grip, lens, and breath. And then I also want to talk about butterflies, gems, and participation. And then after that, we'll finish up with some helpful tools that I've found um, in reading the text that might be helpful for you as well as you encounter the text. Um, and before, even before we jump jump into this historical information, I want to provide a disclaimer here at the very beginning, um, just to let you all know that this podcast is not coming at reading the Bible from the angle of total inerrancy. Um, So this podcast is not talking about the Bible as this totally inerrant text that came from the Word of God, spoken from the heavens, and then humans heard it, and they wrote it down with God literally holding the pen through the Holy Spirit, quote-unquote, and writing down these scriptures so that it's not humans writing it at all, it's actually God writing it. Some people hold to that belief, a lot of people hold to that belief about the Bible, 
I am not one of them. Um, so if that's what you're thinking that this podcast is going to be about, um, I'm happy to tell you it's not, or in some cases, I'm sorry to say that it's not. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to give that disclaimer before we really jumped into um, especially the basic information and background around the Bible, because for many of us, we've been told that the Bible is this holy book that was written by the very hand of God. But when you actually start digging into the historical history, the history of the text, um, you find that it is not necessarily this text that is divinely ordained and written by this like old white bearded dude up in the clouds, but it's actually a very human text and very grounded and rooted in the life, blood, sweat, and guts of what it means to be human and the human experience, particularly from the lens of the oppressed, from the oft downtrodden, from the minority groups of the ancient world all of this kind of stuff. So it is a very provocative text, but at its heart, it is grounded in human experience. Um, and one thing that I like to start off um, from the very beginning is that, like I said, it's written from a very particularly, um, a very particular perspective, a very unique perspective. Um, in particular, I said particular a whole bunch of times. I apologize. Um, so the Bible is written namely by members of the Jewish faith. So the Hebrew scriptures, um, or what Christians would call the Old Testament, span from Genesis, which is the story of the creation of the world, and particularly the patriarch of the Jewish faith, Abraham, and sort of his story, all the way through the Jewish people returning from exile from Babylon in the 6th century BCE, 5th century BCE, I guess it would have been 5th century BCE, 500s BCE. Um, so the, the Hebrew scriptures are talking about that journey of the Jewish people. And then the New Testament is the story of a very small group of Jewish a very small Jewish community that found this rabbi named Jesus and decided to follow him. And they were, they encountered a revolutionary engagement with spirit, with what it means to be human, with what it means to be continually loving others, all this kind of stuff. But with all that being said, the Bible itself is written from very particular perspectives. And with that in mind, one of the first things that we need to realize about the Bible is that the Bible is not meant to be non-discriminatory. Um, so per, especially in the world around us today um, where there's a lot of hypersensitivity going around, and don't get me wrong, some of that hypersensitivity is absolutely well-founded. Um, things like the Me Too movement are absolutely necessary. Um, things like standing up against um, racist language or discriminatory language against people of um, a different gender or a different gender fluidity or different place on the gender spectrum or sexuality or, you know, any of this kind of stuff. That sort of hypersensitivity, of course, is not necessarily a bad thing, but we like to try to make everything fall into this um, to 
I don't necessarily like this word, but to use the politically correct language at all times. And the Bible just does not do that because the Bible is written from the mindset and the perspective of the Jewish faith in a very tribal culture where it very much felt like it was them against the world. And this is not something that's new for ancient texts either. Um, so many so many texts throughout history are written from particular perspectives, normally the conquerors. Um, so one of the, a couple of examples that I can come up with is um, one, the, the decrees of the Roman Caesar um, during the Roman Empire. These were actually called gospel announcements or good news announcements where um, essentially the emperor would go out and tell everyone in the Roman Empire, hey, look at me, I did a really great thing all for the glory of Rome. So these things were preserved and written down. And if you read them, you can very much see the strong Roman bent to what is being written down and said in those texts. Another one would be the Code of Hammurabi, which is a really, really ancient text or ancient column that is written in cuneiform by um, the scribes of the King Hammurabi and it actually has a lot of similarities to that of the Ten Commandments and the Exodus story that we, well, the Exodus law that we see in the book of Exodus. Um, but essentially that code or those laws that Hammurabi are writing is not necessarily just meant to be, this is how we should live as a society. It's meant to prop up his own power and legitimize his own power. And the Bible, while it is unique in the fact that it's written from the perspective of the underdog, is not necessarily all that different in that a lot of the Hebrew scriptures are meant to legitimize the Israelite lineage back to Abraham and back to Adam and Eve. Um, the New Testament, a lot of that is very particularized um, towards communities that are dealing with very real lifeblood problems, and they aren't necessarily meant to be, this fits every single community and church community around the world. So we cannot necessarily write a broad swath of, well, this is what the entire Bible says, because you have to be able to look at the very unique perspective of each individual text that's found within this giant book. Um, the next piece that I would like to talk about going off of that is the fact that the Bible holds a lot of different genres. So the Bible has history in it. It has poetry. It has myth. It has um, these gospels or these um, proclamations of good news. It has letters. It has um, prophetic writings. It has all of this kind of stuff intermixed within it. So one of the things that I like to tell people is you have to be able to pay attention to what kind of text you're right reading, whether it's a myth, whether it's a history, whether it's a poetry, whether it's this proclamation of good news, whether it's a letter that's written to a very specific community, because you would not 
read a poetry book like you would a history textbook or vice versa. You wouldn't read a history textbook as though you are reading something that is eloquently written and supposed to be communicating something other than what it's what's being said. It's not analogizing. It's not um, it's not metaphorizing anything. It's not providing imagery. History textbooks are just telling you like it is. Um, and then an even deeper level, how these different genres were written in their particular times. So our history textbooks are not the same as the histories that were written down in ancient times. So being able to um, dig into what it is we're reading and how to go about reading it and how to understand, well, what is the literary structure? What are they actually getting at? What's the main point or thrust of this book or this passage or this chapter? Because that is all very, very important. Now, and that's why at the end of this podcast, I'm going to provide a couple different tools that might be helpful because I know that not all of you are Bible nerds like me. I've spent the last seven or eight years of my life looking at this kind of stuff, and I find it really interesting, but not everyone does. Um, and that's why I provide those tools so that we can start engaging with this text in a little more nuanced way than necessarily saying, well, it's just from God, so we need to read it like it is. Um as far as the history of how the texts came to be, um, I do want to talk about that a little bit as well. So um, first, we'll talk about the Hebrew Bible. And the Hebrew Bible, um, or the Old Testament, was not actually formed or canonized until after the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BCE to the Babylonian Empire. And what this means is that the stories that we read about in the Hebrew scriptures were not being written as they were happening. They were a collection of memories. Maybe some of them were oral tradition. Most likely a lot of them were oral tradition. Um, but it's this it's this collection of memories that tracks where the Jewish people, where the Israelite people came from and where they are going. And that is a really unique aspect of the Jewish religion and culture as well, because there's a strong tie to memory, memory of the lineage that went before us, where we have come from, what we have come out of, how that has shaped us, how that has formed us, and how that is molding us into what we are doing moving forward. That sort of idea, even though I'm not Jewish, is something that I can really easily connect to. I can look back at all my past experiences and say, well, yeah, that's how that was molding me and that's how that shaped me and that's how that led me to this decision, which led me to this decision. And now all of a sudden I'm sitting at this desk recording a podcast for all of you listeners out there. Um, so that's a very important aspect of the Hebrew Bible as well is when you're reading it, you're not just reading a history, you're not just reading poetry, you're reading this collection of texts that is tracking and remembering the memory and lineage of the Jewish people. Um, secondly, we have the New Testament, at least in the Christian Bible. And the New Testament texts essentially are um, these letters that were written by these um, 
early church leaders, people like Paul, um, Peter, James, the disciples, um, some of the other early church leaders like James, um, the brother of Jesus, um, James of Jerusalem, all these different people. Um, and they were essentially leaders of this new community that were writing letters to different subsections of their community to address specific concerns that these congregations and these communities were having. Um, so we essentially have three different genres within the New Testament. We have the Gospels, we have the letters or the epistles, and then we also have Revelation, which is like an apocalyptic text, um, sort of like the prophetic tradition where it's all about envisioning what is the promise of Christ, what is the promise of the path of Jesus, all this kind of stuff. And I'm not necessarily going to get into the nitty gritty of that, but essentially um, all of these texts and letters and gospels and these proclamations were written to very specific people with very specific things in mind. So for instance, Paul writing to the church in Corinth was addressing very specific concerns that the church in Corinth was having, which you can read about in First and Second Corinthians. But essentially, this church, this congregation was having very serious um, power issues where people were trying to take power. It was a very fractured church. No one was really getting along. Um, people were saying, well, I'm more important than this person. Does that sound like anything to you? that you've experienced in your own life today. Um, on the other hand, um, Paul's letter to the church in Colossians is much more focused on like these theological points of the cosmic Christ um, and how the cosmic Christ is all encompassing and all this other kind of stuff. And then the the church in Ephesus was having different problems, and then the church in Rome, in Rome was a really new church, so Paul was writing to them, giving them like basically his thesis um, in the book of Romans. So, I mean, each of these letters and these epistles are written to very specific people with very specific goals in mind. They weren't necessarily written in order to say, hey, this is going to be in a big book that everyone's going to read 2,000 years from now. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Secondly, the Gospels. Um, the Gospels are these proclamations or these letters or these accounts of in people who have encountered Jesus. Um, and each of these accounts is written within the very real context of the Roman Empire. So Rome um, plays a very big part in the Gospels. Um, Rome plays a very big part in the New Testament as a whole because they're sort of the quote-unquote known world to the people who are writing this. Um, and then, of course, each gospel, each proclamation is written to a different kind of community. Um, so even within these four gospels, which are all telling the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, each one has a different um, piece to it or a different slant to it. So, for instance, if you read the book of Matthew, you encounter um, a writer who is very much tying Jesus into his Jewish roots, um, and they make really strong, excuse me, they make really strong connections to the Hebrew Bible. They make really strong connections between Jesus and Moses. Um, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of Matthew is very, very similar and unpacks um, 
the same themes as the Ten Commandments given on Mount Sinai by Moses in the book of Exodus. Um, So the writer of Matthew is very clearly trying to anchor Jesus in this Jewish memory, in this Jewish religion, in this Jewish heritage. Um, Mark, on the other hand, is very fast-paced. It's very focused on Jesus's humanity and suffering. It's very focused on the mystery of who Jesus was, um, the mystery of what on earth is happening. It feels very like, go, 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 and then Jesus did this, and then suddenly Jesus did this, and then Jesus did this, and then all of a sudden Jesus died, and then Jesus resurrected, and what? And that's the end. Um, (laughs) That's my... um, quick notes, um, cliff notes version of Mark. Um, it's really interesting that Mark actually doesn't really write too much about Jesus's resurrection. It just says Jesus was resurrected and people were like, what? I don't know if I believe that. And that's the end of the book. Um, Moving on, the book of John, on the other hand, is very focused on the divine nature of Jesus and how Jesus's relationship with the divine um, is an invitation for all of us to participate in that relationship with the divine. And John is actually the last gospel that was written, and it comes upwards to like 50, 60, 70 years after the death of Jesus. So there's been some time for these theologies and these doctrines to really take root. And John seems to be very rooted in those sorts of doctrines as Jesus, as divine Jesus, as member of the Trinity, even though the Trinity wouldn't have been used at that time. Um, And then the fourth, fourth gospel we have is Luke. And Luke talks about Jesus's ministry to the poor, to Jesus's ministry to the oppressed, to the outsider. Um, It connects directly to the books, book of Acts, because it's actually the same author. Um, And these two books really track the path of the Christian community from the small, tight-knit group that surrounded Jesus to all of a sudden expanding across the Roman world and expanding into the hearts and minds of anyone and everyone. It's a book about radical inclusion. Um, And each of these Gospels were sent to different places around the Roman Empire. So Matthew would have been probably written to a community in Antioch, which had a very strong Jewish community within it. Um, The others were a little more general, and we don't necessarily know quite as much, but Luke was probably given to um, a group of people in and around Asia Minor, so Roman citizens um, who weren't necessarily part of the Jewish faith, but you know, you see in this book of Luke that it's saying everyone is part of this. Everyone, 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 everyone. No exclusion. Everyone's included. Everyone's on the same level. Um, so I know I'm really getting into the weeds here a little bit, but essentially what I'm trying to say is that each book, each letter, each text that you're reading in the Bible, you have to be able to pull out what is the context of what this is trying to say to me. Um, Because ultimately, the context can be very foreign to us. Um, The context can seem that it's not relevant in our lives today. But just because something is written from a very particular context that seems different or foreign or outdated, that doesn't mean that insight and wisdom still can't be gleaned from that. Um, So recently I was um, 
going through the store, the book Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown. And in that book, she shares this story of this young man who doesn't necessarily have a very strong relationship with his father, him and his father butt heads a lot. Um, from the way she tells the story, the son is more progressive um, and more politically correct, quote unquote, and his dad isn't. And anyway, so this son goes to his dad's house and um, the son says, hey, I know you had some new neighbors. How are they? Um, And his dad starts gushing about how much they love their new neighbors, how great they are. And in the midst of that, the dad calls his neighbors oriental. Now, that is an outdated phrase. That is not politically correct. And the son absolutely like blows up at his dad. And his dad gets really forlorn and really sad. And his dad says, I don't know what I did to hurt you. I didn't mean to say something wrong. I didn't realize that that term was outdated. And then he says, if you'll excuse me, I actually need to go take my neighbor's wife, who you claim I'm being racist towards, to the hospital so that she can be with her husband right now. Um, And I thought that was a really powerful story because it goes to show that, yes, there's things that need to be sifted through. Yes, language needs to change. Yes, we need to not be racist or exclusionary. Um, or anything like that, we need to be able to use language that's inclusive of all people. I firmly am with that. But even when people or texts or contexts are a little different, that doesn't mean that you can't still find nuggets of love and compassion and grace within them. Um, And the simple fact is we need to be able to sift through the context of the Bible um, in order to really pull some of those nuggets out sometimes. And that takes work. It's not something that's necessarily inherently given in the text. And sometimes we have to read the Bible while doing our homework as well. And maybe that means reading in reading the Bible in concourse with other texts that help us to gain contextual insight. So maybe it means reading the Bible alongside a Bible commentary. Uh, Maybe it's a rabbinical commentary like the Midrash. Uh, Maybe it's a more contemporary commentary um, like the New Interpreter's Bible commentaries, which are my personal favorite, um, though not cheap. Uh, Maybe it is reading the Bible alongside a Bible textbook. Um, there's a really good one on the New Testament by Mark Powell, and there's another really good one on the Hebrew Bible by um, Coogan. I can't remember his first name off the top of my head, but if you look up Hebrew Bible Dr. Coogan, you'll probably be able to find it. Um, Those are really great textbooks that give a lot of background information that I found helpful as I was going through college and seminary. Um, Other things that you might be able to find helpful if you don't necessarily have access to those Um, biblical resources would just be reading the Bible in concourse with other historical texts or information that coincide with the story. So for instance, reading through the New Testament, reading through the gospel stories while also tracking the path of the Roman Empire during that time and doing your research about, well, what was going on in the Roman Empire? How, what was life like? What were some of the idiosyncrasies and particularities about Roman life? Um, and see if you can find any connections there that help give you a little more insight into this text that 
leaves a lot of blank space. Um, but essentially to wrap up this whole um, historical background information, and folks, I am just barely scratching the surface. There is so, so much more to this. I am giving you like a millisecond of information compared to years and years and years worth of information. So I, I encourage you to continue digging into this if you find this interesting. Um, but I encourage you to also keep this in mind if you're going to sit down and read the Bible or if someone is talking to you about the Bible. Keep this sort of stuff in mind because ultimately the Bible was written by humans in very specific contexts who were encountering quintessential questions of what it means to be human, how to live and interact with the world, how to live in, and interact with other people, all this kind of stuff, which is very similar to the kind of questions that we have today. And that makes the Bible worthwhile to keep around because we're all struggling with the question of what does it mean to be human? I know I am. I'm sure some of you are as well. I would be willing to bet pretty much all of us are asking that question. So encountering those specific contexts and encountering the Bible where it's at can sort of be our first step into looking into this text that might seem foreign, that might seem otherworldly, and really be able to pull something meaningful out of it. There's a reason the Bible has been around for as long as it has, and we'll get into that a little bit later. So next, I want to talk about some ideas that have helped me sort of frame the Bible in positive lights. Um, so first, I want to talk about some ideas that have framed... Um, that have caused the Bible to be framed in negative ways for me. So the first is grip. Um, so essentially what I've experienced is people who have mishandled the Bible in the fact that they are strangle holding the text to fit their view or agenda. Essentially they're taking the Bible out of context. They are wringing out all this blank space that lays in between the text. One of my favorite images about the Bible is that is this idea of black fire and white fire. The black fire is in is the text that's written down on the page, but the white fire is the space in between the text and the margins and all this empty space that's in between that left leaves things unanswered or uninterpreted or undescribed. Um, and what people who strangle hold or grip the Bible tightly do is they get rid of all of that white fire. They get rid of all that space to say that this is the exact thing that this text is saying. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no other interpretation. Um, one of the examples of this is um, the interpretation of anti-LGBTQ texts within the New Testament that Paul is writing about, um, particularly to the church in Corinth. Um, so people who grip the Bible really tightly say, well, this is what it says in English, so obviously that must mean um, people who are part of the LGBTQ community are sinners. Um, but when, when you release the grip and when you let 
the white fire breathe a little bit and you start to dig into the context that Paul was writing into um, and start digging into the context of, well, yeah, that might be what it says in English, but what does it say in the original Greek? Which, by the way, English is not a very nuanced language. Just saying. Um, But anyway, when you dig into the context, you see that Paul is not necessarily writing about two consensual adult males entering into a sexual relationship with one another. Paul is referring to one adult male who is entering into a non-consensual sexual relationship with a young man or a young boy. Um, And this is the practice that Paul is fighting against because of the lack of nuance within the English language at points. This gets translated as anyone who is um, practicing in homosexual acts is a sinner, but that's not the practice that was happening. The practice was this non-consensual power play of someone influencing and asserting their power and influence influence over a young child. I think you and I can both agree that that's not cool. That's not a good thing. And I'm glad that Paul stood up and said, hey, don't fucking do that. Um, But when you are gripping the Bible so tightly that it has to fit your agenda, it has to fit your view, you're getting rid of all of that blank space, you're getting rid of that context, you're saying, well, this is what it says in the plain English, you're taking things out of context and you're missing the point. You're missing the point of the whole story. You're missing the point of the passage. The book of Corinthians is not a passage, or it's not a book about um, anti-homosexuality. It's a book about, or it's a letter that's being written to a community that says, y'all motherfuckers need to love each other, no matter who you are or where you come from. But if you're gripping it tightly and trying to make it fit your agenda, it's really hard to be able to see that within that particular text. And across the whole Bible, this happens not just in Corinthians, but across the whole Bible. Um, Very similar to grip is lens. And one of the things that causes, um, causes this gripping of the Bible is the viewing of the Bible through a very particular lens. Um, so looking through one singular lens, particularly the lens of this is what God said, so this is what it must mean. Um, oftentimes the lens is from one's very own perspective or one's own standing. So, um, you know, looking through it from a white middle class American male perspective has been done a lot, um, And this can be really troubling when you're approaching such a diverse group of texts that's not written from a singular lens at any point. Yes, there are particular perspectives, but even within that, there's so much nuance. And I'll be one of the first ones to say there's a lot of danger in reading the Bible from the viewpoint of the person or the society that's in 
power because so much of the Bible is written from the perspective of the oppressed, of the enslaved, of the people with the boot of the oppressor upon their neck. And when people view the Bible as this is used to legitimize my rule and my power and my influence and my coercion over you, that's really troubling. And that, again, is missing a large section of the Bible. I would claim it's missing the entire point of the Bible. And like I said, the Bible cannot be narrowed down into one particular point or one particular um, answer to the question of what it means to be human. But I can tell you the Bible is absolutely not about coercing and leading and using power and influence to coerce other people and oppress other people. And the Bible, when viewed through singular lenses, when viewed through, well, this is what it means to me, doesn't matter what anyone else, what it means to anyone else, because it If it means this to me, that must mean it means that to everyone else. That is a problem. Um, Just look at Imperial Europe and their widespread, quote unquote, evangelization of the people and tribes in Africa. Um, Look at the white slave owners um, who tried to influence and coerce others by oppressive means while they're reading this biblical text that's against people doing that but they're gripping it really tightly and they're looking at it through a singular lens and this brings me to the third idea when you do these things when you grip the bible when you look at it through a singular lens when you strangle hold it the bible can't breathe and when the bible can't breathe this is the breath part when the bible can't breathe the bible is a dead text if the bible can't breathe if you're gripping it so tightly that the bible can't be what the bible is it becomes a dead book and i think for many of us when we encounter the Bible as it's st- in that sort of context as a dead book, yeah, of course. Why, why on earth would we want to keep that? Why on earth would we want to keep a book that is oppressive? Why on earth would we want to keep a book that's used to legitimize people, corrupt people who are in power? Why on earth would we want to keep a book that says my way or the highway? Why would we, why would we want to keep a book that propagates death rather than life. Yeah, I'm right there with you. If that's what the Bible is, fuck it. But the fun fact is, the Bible is not that. Um, So the two, I have um, some other... Three more ideas that talk about or frame the Bible in a more positive light that are that are used to counteract the three that I just talked about. So um, the first that I talked about in negative framing is grip. We need to treat the Bible um, almost like it is a butterfly that we're holding in our palm. We need to loosen 
up when we are approaching the Bible. We need to let the Bible breathe. We need to let the Bible be what the Bible is. And then by encountering the Bible where it's at, that's where we begin to find the answers of, oh, this is what this person was struggling with. This is this is someone who's um, facing a personal crisis. This is a community that's trying to figure out how to love one another. This is a family that's been told that they are meant to bring love and grace and forgiveness and expansion to all people. And they're not necessarily doing that. Huh? I wonder how that fits into the life that I'm living. But unless we actually let the Bible breathe, unless we hold it loosely, unless we allow its context to be its context, it's not going to be able to live and breathe and give forth life like it's supposed to. Um, so letting go, holding the Bible loosely. Yes, we're still holding it, but our fingers aren't clenched. Our fingers are loosely caressing the pages. Our fingers are loosely holding it. And if the Bible or the Bible as a butterfly wants to leave our palm, we need to open our palm and let it go. So we need to hold it loosely. Um, let that white white fire speak let interpretation be brought into it let questions be brought into it that's another aspect of grip that i didn't mention but when you're gripping the bible so tightly there can be no questions brought against it you have a defined answer against any sort of attack you have some sort of defense this is what apologetics is is you have an attack i have a ready-made defense and this is my grip on that defense but when we're holding it like a bible the bible like a butterfly that leaves us open to those questions and leaves us open to having to say yeah i that's a fair point and i've never thought about it that way or yeah i'm probably wrong or even worse i have no idea it's in those moments when we're actually able to be humble and say i have no idea i need to learn from someone else or something else that's where the juice is that's where the magic is um Going along with that and sort of the counter to the lens would be the many faceted gem. And this actually comes from rabbinic teachings and from the Jewish tradition. Um, But they view the Bible not necessarily as this text that gives all the answers, but they view the Bible almost like this multifaceted gem that when you're looking at it from one perspective, the light shines down on it and it refracts in a beautiful pattern. But then if you shift the gem and read it from a different perspective or look at it from a different perspective, asking different questions of it, all of a sudden the light refracting through the gem changes and you see new and beautiful things and you experience different aspects of the text. Um, So instead of viewing the Bible through the singular lens of, well, what does this mean to me? Reading the Bible through the lens of, well, what does this mean to um, my LGBTQ neighbor? What does this mean for 
um, the immigrant family who just moved in down the street? What does this mean for the people who have had the boot of an oppressor upon their neck? Um, what does this mean for um, the my family member who voted Republican? What does this family? What does this Bible passage mean for someone who voted? Democrat in the last election, all this kind of stuff. So shifting the lens, shifting the questions that we're asking of the text, um, and essentially dancing with it. Um, we are, we're moving in and around and with the text. We're not stationary. We're not standing still. We're moving. It's almost like an ebb and flow because ultimately the third idea is that the text is a participatory text. It's not something that we read and put down and say, hey, this is the rules that I've been given. Great. I'm good to go. The Bible is a text that's saying, hey, I want to grab you and I want to dance with you and I want you to be asking these tough questions of what does it mean to be human? I want you to be asking these questions of what does it mean to be remembering my heritage? I want you to be asking the questions of what does it mean to be in exile? What does it mean to love other people? What does it mean to fail and fail hard? That's what the Bible is trying to do. It's not saying, hey, I'm here and you're there and we'll be, we'll have a productive um, relationship where I provide you goods and you provide me services for those goods and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's not, it's not a consumer consumption relationship. Um, it's an intimate dance partnership where you're moving in and with one another at one point the bible will be taking the lead and you'll be learning so much from it and then at the next moment all of a sudden you're pouring yourself into this text um and i know that's kind of ethereal but ultimately the bible is something that you participate with Um, and one of my experiences, um, one of my experiences with someone who was not doing the butterfly was not viewing it as a multifaceted gem was not participating with the text, um, they were doing all of the negative stuff, um, was a class on the Hebrew Bible that I took at Reformed Theological Seminary. And I was taking this class on the Hebrew Bible, and I mean, it was not a very well-structured class anyway, but at one point we were going through the book of Joshua. And if you're familiar, if you're not familiar with the book of Joshua, this is the story of essentially the Israelite genocide of the Canaanites. Um, and at one point, everyone in this class was saying, well, this this story about the Israelite genocide of the Canaanites, um, it's divinely ordained and it's going to show point towards Jesus in some confounded way, even though the people who were writing this story down had no knowledge of Jesus. He was a couple hundred years after them. Anyway, um, 
So they they were gripping this text. They were viewing it through the singular lens of this must have something to do with Jesus. And the text really had become dead to me. And at one point I raised my hand and I asked the question, so are you saying that it's okay for God to just completely wipe out part of God's creation? And they're like, yep, if it points to Jesus, fine. That's totally fine. And they were not holding the Bible loosely. They were not able to shift the lens to, well, what if we read this particular passage from the perspective of the Canaanites? What does this tell us about God if we are reading this from the perspective of the Canaanites? And how does that conflict and agitate and cause friction with what we do believe about God and how do we participate in that friction to find some form of resolution they were unable to do that and because of that I was completely shut off the whole class was dead to me essentially not that I wish those people were dead but all of a sudden this class held nothing for me. So with that in mind, I want to go over just a couple tools that I found have been helpful when encountering the Bible that I hope are helpful for you. Uh, The first tool that I want to talk about is, um, as I was talking about in that experience that I had with RTS, is read the Bible from the perspective of the parties, all the parties present in the story. Um, So in the case of uh, the Canaanite genocide, reading it from the perspective of the Canaanite community. When you're reading the um, gospel stories of Jesus confronting the Pharisees, yeah, read it from Jesus's perspective, but also read it from the Pharisees' perspective. Ask questions. Um, one of the most helpful things that I've ever done in exercise and in experience is writing down a list of questions that the Bible brings out. So read a passage and then write down every single question that you can think of, whether it's literary based, technical based, theologically based, um, grammatically based based, you know, whatever it might be, just write down all of those questions and consider the passage from the perspectives that those questions bring about. That is a way that we can begin to shift that gem. That's a way that we begin to loosen our grip on the Bible. Um, That's the way that we're able to hold it loosely. Um, and that's, I mean, that's the second tool and, you know, we've talked about this some, but to hold it loosely means that there's going to be times when the Bible gives you answers and that's great. And there's going to be times when the Bible leaves you with totally unanswerable questions and we need to be able to say that is okay. Because ultimately there are times in life when you feel like you have it all together and there are times in life when you feel like you have no fucking clue 
what is going on. Raise your hand and say amen if you're with me. Um, Just like we need to learn to hold our lives loosely, so too do we need to be able to hold the Bible loosely and be okay with not knowing, be okay with the friction, be okay with saying, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that and working through that. Um, And then the third tool I have is confront the Bible. Ask questions of the text, yes, but don't be afraid to disagree with it. Yes, I just said that. I gave you permission. Confront the Bible. I am going to be the first one at the front of the line that says, fuck the Israelite genocide of the Canaanites. Um, personally, I don't think it happened as it's written in the text. I don't think it really happened at all, historically speaking, but I am going to be the first one to say that I disagree with that story. It has caused friction in me and it has caused me to really confront, do I believe that God is a God of love or do I believe that God is a God of violence? And obviously there's some nuance within the answers to that. But in disagreeing with the Bible, in disagreeing with that story, I've been able to find that, yes, God is a God of love. Um, And of course, there are ways to dig into the context and not, like I said, historically speaking, the way that that um, story is told, it definitely didn't happen that way. It probably didn't happen at all. It was probably more gradual with... um, Israelite people, Hebrew people, and Canaanite people intermarrying and, you know, like all this kind of stuff, whatever. Um, But don't be afraid to ask questions of the text and don't be afraid to say, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't think I agree with that. That is okay because that is your participation with the text. It's a dance. There's going to be times when you're in sync and there's going to be times when you're, it's almost like you're doing solo things and you're just on the same stage. Um, and that's okay. That's a good place to be. Um, now, like I said, these are just a few tools about reading the Bible. Obviously, there is so, so, so much more. Um, But I encourage you to continue doing your own digging. I encourage you to continue confronting the Bible with your own experience. I encourage you to keep turning the gem. I encourage you to keep holding it loosely, to continue asking questions, to continue participating in it. Because ultimately, when the Bible is at its best, it provides us with an insight not into these old Bible heroes, but rather it provides a deep, deep insight into our own lives. It provides us a deeper insight into our truest selves and into the shared divine spirit of love, which courses through all things. That's the Bible at its best. I would argue that's any sacred text at its best, because ultimately for me, whether you adhere to the tenets of the Christian faith or the Jewish faith, um, or any other faith, really, I'm still a proponent that the Bible can still be helpful for us. 
You know, there's a reason, there is a reason that these ancient texts like the Bible or the Quran or the Upanishads or the Vedas or the teachings of the Buddha have persisted. Um, you know, all of these things could have easily died out. These texts could have easily not been copied down. These oral traditions could have easily not been preserved for future generations, but there was something within them that moved life and blood humans into a deeper understanding of themselves and their communities and their place in the world. And that is a worthwhile endeavor to allow to persist. These great and deep traditions, which have formed in, which have been formed in part by these texts are still able to provide us with vital insight into how to live our lives today. And for that reason, as long as they are handled with proper care, I will still read them. I will still read the Bible and find great worth in its teachings. Do I agree with everything within its pages? No. Do I believe that the Bible has been used for a tool, used as a tool for manipulation and power grabbing? Um Yes, I do believe that it has been used. Do I believe that it should? Absolutely not. Um, But friends, there is still wisdom and insight to be found even in this. So I hope that this podcast has helped you to see that there is wisdom and insight to be had beyond that initial gut reaction of this Bible is old and outdated and used to hurt people. Um, There are wonderful lessons within its pages for those who are able to see it and handle it with humility and curiosity. And of course, as always, in whatever healthy way you engage with spiritual or religious texts like the Bible, I hope that it's something that helps you to continually and eternally return to the font of our shared spirit of wild, messy, and infinite love. Peace and love, y'all.